Welcome to Season 3 of Sea Salt and Parm. I'm Michaela from the Millennial Outside, a teller of stories, a lover of food, a wanderer of wild places, and a wearer of many hats. This is me sharing the simple things in life that I find extraordinary. Can I tell you a story? Before we begin, I want to warn you that this episode's going to be a little different. In the second segment after the intermission, we're doing something a little unique. I'm talking about a spot that's near and dear to my heart and its place in pop culture. And to do that, I wanted to share a couple songs with you all. Um, because of copyright laws, I can't just put the songs into this episode. So on Spotify, there's a feature where I can add in the music so that you can listen to the whole song, not just the chunks I want you to, of course. Uh, So you have to bear through the whole song with me um, of each of these pieces of music that I want to highlight. The thing is, it's only available on Spotify. So if you are listening right now on Apple or a web browser or anything else that is not Spotify, you're just going to hear me say, insert whatever song here. You're more than welcome to keep listening on Apple or those other podcast players, but that just means you're going to have to stop, look up the song, and then come back to my podcast. So I would highly suggest you switch over to Spotify right now because it's going to be a way better experience. While I'd spent the better part of a year training for Kilimanjaro, I realized there was something decidedly unique about hiking long distances with everything you need strapped to your own back as I stared up at a steep mountain pass at the end of this past summer. The day before, I'd already broken a personal distance record, lugging three days worth of food, shelter, and warmth on my back. That day, we were set to tackle the first two passes of the trip, depositing us into a basin surrounded by picture-perfect peaks I'd been daydreaming of for years. As I measured my steps one foot in front of the other, working my way up an impossibly steep talus slope, the wind threatening to blow me off the mountain, I started to think about survival mode. Survival mode is a phrase that's usually used negatively, an animalistic state where nothing but getting through the day matters. But as I climbed that talus slope, or maybe after the climb, as we sat in our camp chairs making instant rice, it occurred to me that as outdoor enthusiasts, we chase survival mode quite often. For me, the main reason to get outside is being outside itself. Being in nature, I feel like the best version of myself. Some combination of sun and dirt and fresh air makes me feel most alive. While I do love just being outside, what I love most is being active outside. Hiking or biking or skiing. I love the beautiful views that feel even sweeter having reached them on foot. I love burning my anxious energy and the feel of sore muscles. But I also love the meditative state that comes from working hard, when everything else fades away and you're left with nothing but making it up the hill. There's a term coined for it by psychologists, flow state. According to Headspace, it's that sense of fluidity between your body and mind, where you're totally absorbed by and deeply focused on something, beyond the point of distraction. Different people find flow doing different things. Maybe it's drawing or reading or gardening, but for me, it's hiking or biking up a hill. Once I've pushed through the, oh my god, I'm going to die moments, and found a state where I can focus on nothing but putting one foot in front of the other, breathing in and out, and the feeling of wind and sun on my face. It's meditative, and it's been shown to have positive effects on your mental health. I think part of the reason many of us choose to get outside and to do so actively is the flow state that comes from physically exerting yourself but I think there's more to it than that. When we were in our early 20s, we decided to say fuck it to everything. Our jobs, our leases, our life in Colorado, 
and we set off in our Subaru to live on the road for the summer. Topher was ready to give college another try that fall, and I wasn't satisfied with my job in the mortgage industry. We didn't really know where we wanted to be or what we wanted to do when we got back, and I had this idea that spending the summer on the road was going to bring some sort of an epiphany. Of course, as anyone that's ever hoped that a change of scenery would fix their fundamental problems knows, this line of thinking is pretty delusional and never actually works. Epiphanies usually aren't moments of spark, and they usually happen in totally mundane places over long periods of time, like, for instance, looking at the same spreadsheet for months on end. When we got home two months and thousands of miles later, and I didn't have my life figured out, I was upset. I blamed the trip itself. It hadn't been at all what I thought it would be. We dreamed of traversing Canada, and two hours past the border, we had a bit of a meltdown from a lack of planning and hightailed it back to the U.S. The Subaru had a mysterious overheating problem, which we chased across Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, and Northern California, going through a new radiator, gallons of coolant, and many hours spent on the side of the road waiting for the engine to cool. I'd imagined long, endless afternoons of creative bliss, riding and taking photos and basking in nature, and letting creativity come to me. The reality of life on the road, however, was different than I'd imagined. Besides the car needing frequent maintenance, the act of survival alone became infinitely more complicated. We spent our days driving from one destination to the next, an unspoken desire to keep moving since we really had no plan anymore. There were groceries to buy and a cooler to keep full of ice and empty of water. We poured over maps every day, looking for forest service roads we could camp off of. As evening settled in, we'd spend hours driving around looking for a place to park the car for the night, or hopefully set up the tent if we were lucky. Once we found a spot, we went through pitching the tent or turning the car into a bed for the night, setting up the stove, cooking, doing dishes. There were showers and bathrooms to find, gas stops to plan. Even making coffee was an ordeal, though it was one I deeply cherished. By the time we crawled into our sleeping bags, we normally only had enough energy for a chapter or two of our books before we fell asleep. We saw so many incredible places on our trip, from Yellowstone's geysers to Glacier's waterfalls, from incredible sunsets over Montana's lakes to eating falafel in downtown Seattle. From hiking through the Cascades to taking the ferry to BC, the trip was full of incredible moments I glossed over at first. Those months were so full of survival that I didn't have time to think about what came next. I'd only realized later how beautiful that time actually was. What a gift it was to be forced to be in the present moment every single day. The big beautiful moments, the waterfalls and the stunning vistas and the waves crashing to shore, were incredible. But the mundane simple moments were incredible too. Making mac and cheese at a pull-off on a mountain road, picking wildflower bouquets, brushing our teeth in grocery store bathrooms. Today, traveling internationally is one of my favorite things to do. I love seeing new places and experiencing new cultures and, of course, eating new food. But one of my favorite parts of traveling abroad is how it strips you down to the basics. When we went to Japan or Paris, we didn't actually do that much. Most of our days were spent wandering foreign streets and figuring out the grocery stores and stumbling over ordering coffees and spinning around in circles on train platforms. It's hard to think about the stress of everyday life when you're focused on surviving, whether it's on some rural highway in Montana, in a foreign bakery, or miles into the backcountry. Climbing up the hill might be where the true flow state lies, but there's elements of it in any activity that requires your full focus for survival. We hike, or ski, or climb, or surf, or backpack to escape the screens, and the commutes, and the laundry, and the rest of the tediousness that comes from living in a capitalistic society. 
I've seen several versions of the same meme, lamenting on how humans gave up spending every day in nature in exchange for time spent in front of a screen for inherently meaningless currency floating around the internet lately. It's an easy leap to make. We take a long weekend, and we go out to the trailheads, and we strap on our packs, and we hike for miles, we filter creek water, and we see a beautiful sunset, and we eat our dehydrated meals, and maybe we see a moose, or get a blister, or catch a fish, and it feels so perfect and magical and right, we wonder why we ever moved indoors, or invented the internet in the first place. But then we get home, and shower, and wash our nasty clothes in a washing machine, and eat delicious food that we didn't have to chase or harvest ourselves that was made possible by refrigeration. We have time to think and create and appreciate art. We aren't dying of exposure or puncture wounds from hunting a moose. I think 21st century life is actually pretty good. I think the lesson in there is that there's a balance between survival and ease. A place in between hermetically sealed meat under fluorescent lights and stalking a moose through the woods. It's going to the farmer's market or making your own pasta. It's biking to the brewery or growing basil on your back porch. It's trying something new and feeling like a beginner or wandering foreign streets and bravely ordering a cafe au lait for door because you forgot the word for to go. It's filling your backpack and putting one foot in front of the other and relishing the taste of ice-cold, snowmelt-fed creek water and watching the stars pop out one by one and eating 17 granola bars in one weekend and laying in the thick meadow grass, exhausted, not caring how dirty you're getting. It's standing at the top of a pass, looking out across a mountain range, listening to Pika cry, and watching a raven wheeling high up in the impossibly blue skies, and knowing that you did this. You made this happen. You survived. Which is, objectively, pretty extraordinary. Normally I get the sounds for my intermissions from a stock sound website, but this time I have something very special for you. So when we went on that backpacking trip that I covered in the last segment, when we were filtering water, we came across this beautiful little stream that was just like the most picturesque place in the entire world, and I recorded some audio there. So enjoy for the next minute the soothing sound of a Wyoming mountain stream. There are six types of Cholula hot sauce, but the green one is the best. From afar, its only distinguishing factor is the cap. The classic wooden top is dyed a weird shade of green. Cholula green pepper hot sauce is officially a zesty burst of jalapeno and poblano peppers with signature spices. How was that to sound like a commercial? Unofficially, it's the only hot sauce I want to eat on hash browns. And the only place I want to eat hash browns is Waffle House. Every group has their breakfast spot. Growing up, my family's was an oddball chain spot called La Peep. It was kitschy, and my sister could order chicken tenders at 8 o'clock in the morning. 
My husband's family went to IHOP, presumably for the multiple flavors of syrup, but maybe that's just me projecting. In college, the theater department went to Village Inn every Wednesday night because you'd get a slice of pie for free with a drink. We'd consume endless pots of coffee and slices of free pie, 15 of us to a table at 11 o'clock at night after rehearsals and pay and change. I know for a fact the waitstaff hated us. While Village Inn holds a special spot in my heart, it was the breakfast place I inherited, and therefore, never really mine. My spot was Waffle House. When we first started hanging out, Topher and I would spend Friday nights at the climbing gym. Student and I went from 8 to 11, and by the time we were done and we'd headed back to his hometown, nothing was open besides the Taco Bell drive through and Walmart. It was the kind of town where the stoplights started blinking before midnight and the streets were empty. We'd loiter around Parker, climbing the fence of the baseball field or wandering around the graveyard, or generally just being bored teenagers, until, one night, we went to Waffle House. The small building tucked between an auto parts store and a car wash was seemingly as old as time. Its yellow and black branding belonged in a different century, and we'd driven by it countless times, never giving it a second thought, until one night, the warm yellow glow enticed us to come in. If you've never been to a Waffle House, I hope this podcast convinces you to change that stat. If you've never been to a Waffle House, I hope this podcast convinces you to change that stat. But if you have, you know that there's a certain magic to it that words simply can't describe. There's the interior that's seemingly all kitchen. Sticky vinyl booths that are always too small, lined up against the kitchen counter, and the exterior wall that's one giant expanse of windows. There's the brown tile floors and the plastic menu with photos that doubles as a placemat. Then there's the food. It's a breakfast restaurant, so of course there's eggs and bacon. And there are waffles, though they have tiny little holes and come with a plastic tub of butter and aren't really anything to write home about. Once, a Waffle House newbie ordered a salad when they came with us. And while I can't vouch for much on the menu since I always order the same thing, I can with authority say that the salad is not the move. The waitress had to check the back to make sure they even had lettuce. At most breakfast places, hash browns are a side, but at Waffle House, they're the main event. They come in three sizes, which, like most sizes, are completely arbitrary. A regular is going to leave you wanting more, a triple is a truly ungodly amount of fried potatoes, and a large is probably just about right if you're a teenager who spent the evening climbing up plastic walls. Hash browns are ordered with a variety of toppings, which are listed on the menu, but if you use words like cheese or jalapenos, the waitress will look at you blankly. There's a lingo that's got to be used. Capped will get you weird canned mushrooms. Diced will get you little chunks of ham. Peppered is jalapenos, the fresh kind, not the pickled kind, and diced is tomatoes. If you're weird and like your hash browns soggy, country is covered with gravy and topped is covered with chili. The pro move, though, and I'm not just saying this because of the Bloodhound Gang, is smothered and covered. Insert bad touch here. Grilled onions, a craft single melted over the top, and then scour all those tables for the 1 in 10 bottle of green Cholula, and what you have is perfection. Maybe you're a Denny's or an IHOP or cult favorite, Snooze, but you have to admit, those places don't hold a candle to Waffle House's spot in pop culture. Bad Touch is the first of many pop culture Waffle House references I started collecting after that first magical encounter. Waffle House became our post-climbing spot. Covered in chalk, a little sweaty, and a little bruised, we'd roll into Waffle House, sometimes just the two of us, sometimes with friends, 
and we'd order a giant plate of hash browns and some bad coffee. And while the rest of the world was sleeping, we'd stay enveloped in the yellow glow of fluorescent lighting and grill smoke. Waffle House is open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. When we'd roll in in the middle of the night, sometimes we were the only ones there besides the employees. But usually, there'd be another insomniac or two, warming their hands around a mug of coffee, reading the newspaper. Sometimes, we'd run into Topher's sister's boyfriend and his metal band after a late show. While Village Inn and IHOP and La Peep were always cheerful and chaotic, Waffle House has always had a bit of a melancholy glow to it. The random assortment of midnight diners talk quietly, staying in their own bubbles. Sometimes, someone would put a song on the jukebox. I like the feeling of solidarity without interaction. Sometimes, I'd go to Waffle House by myself when Topher was working late and read a book, waiting for him to get off work. Once, we tried to go on a Sunday morning, and it was like seeing a teacher at the grocery store. Unrecognizable. Every booth was full, and there was a crush of people at the hostess stand waiting to be sat. There were several people cooking, every space on the griddle full of hash browns and eggs, and the employee who finally sat us was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We never went back during daylight hours. In our world, Waffle House belongs to the night, steeped in that warm yellow glow. As a teenager, my friend Marion and I were obsessed with Sarah Dessen's YA books. Our favorite, Along for the Ride, which was recently made into a Netflix movie, featured a laundromat turned pie and coffee shop that while didn't resemble Waffle House in the slightest, always gave me the same nostalgic vibes. Morning would come before we knew it, Dessen writes. It always did. But we still had the night, and for now, we are together. So I just closed my eyes and drank it all in. Because of Waffle House's all-hour status, there's an informal disaster measurement index named after it. While there's Waffle Houses all over the U.S., they started in Georgia and are most ubiquitous in the South. When a hurricane, tornado, or other natural disaster hits, the Waffle House index measures just how bad it is. Green means the restaurant is serving the full menu, with power. Yellow means no power, or generator only, and a limited menu. Red means the restaurant is closed. Until the pandemic hit, it was rare for the index to go red. That's how reliable Waffle House is. There's a book co-written by John Green, Lauren Miracle, and Maureen Johnson called Let It Snow. It's a YA book with three stories surrounding the same Waffle House in the days leading up to Christmas. The blizzard of the century rages on, and Waffle House is still open. In high school, we tested it, venturing out in the middle of the night in my Jeep, the tires spinning and slipping as we crawled through the feet of snow and unplowed roads to reach our destination. Sure enough, the lights were on and the grill was going. I tried to order a waffle, covered, like the characters in the book, and the waitress looked at me like I was crazy, and I got a waffle and a cold craft single on a plate on the side. I still covered my hash browns and maple syrup as a tribute, and they were actually pretty good. I've been to half a dozen Waffle Houses, and the graveyard staff is always the same. There's a haggard-looking waitress covering the entire restaurant. The other reason to always order your hash brown smothered and covered is that it's usually the only way you'll get the right order. Despite the fancy lingo and the fact that you're one of two tables in the whole place and you're sitting three feet from the grill, your plate will almost definitely not show up the way you ordered it. It's part of the charm. I hate ragging on wait staff because been there, done that. But Jake Owen's Real Life, the second song in my Waffle House pop culture archive, pretty much perfectly sums it up. Insert Real Life here. In addition to the waitress, there's always a big, muscled dude with Waffle House branded sleeves covering up his tattooed arms working the grill. 
If it's a slow night, he's probably going to be outside smoking or having a furtive conversation at the back of the parking lot with the random guy who's been sitting out there in his old Honda for 45 minutes. Like the waitress, who has real problems, we don't judge because his hash browns are exquisite. Walker Hayes' Fancy Like is objectively a terrible song, but I can't help love it just a little bit when Kesha sings about Waffle House. Insert Fancy Like here. That's the latest song I've added to my archive, but when I googled songs about Waffle House to see what I was missing, it turns out there are dozens more. Two Chains alone mentions it in at least three songs. There's something about it that's captured more than just my heart. In reality, those hash browns are just shredded and fried potatoes. Under a microscope, they're probably not any different from those served at other breakfast spots across America. What makes them special is that ethos. On its own, the yellow lights, the plastic menus, the forlorn jukebox, the bad coffee, and yes, the hash browns, are nothing special. But put them all together, add in a decade's worth of my memories, the collective memories of writers and musicians and weather forecasters and insomniacs and road trippers, and it becomes something truly extraordinary. Thanks for listening, friends. If you like Sea Salt and Farm, please subscribe and leave me a rating which helps the algorithm suggest my podcast to more listeners. You can find me on Instagram at the Millennial Outside.